competed in, in university in Canada and um, continued on after uh, with the club and um, competed at the Olympic trials twice. And, um, you know, it's some people, to some people that seems like, you know, really highest of levels. And, you know, I might agree to a certain level, but in Canada versus the United States, for example, the Olympic trials are quite like vastly different. Um, if you make the Olympic trials in the U.S., like you're arguably you're, you know, a sort of a top athlete uh, in track. Whereas in Canada, you can kind of sneak into the Olympic trials in a way, um, mostly because there's not as much depth in, in Canada for, for Olympic trials. Mm -hmm. You still have to, you know, of course, qualify and, and, and compete. Um, but um, it's not as... Uh, it's not as hard as it might be in, in a country like the U.S. where the depth in, in athletes, um, you know, level and abilities is, is so, so deep. And, um, you know, for example, I would have never, I would have never qualified for Olympic trials in the U.S. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. That's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has his PhD in biomechanics, He's an associate professor at the University of Memphis doing a lot of interesting research. He's also a runner. Welcome to the show, Dr. Max Pocket. Hi, thanks for having me. Max, before we got going, um, we were talking about running. We're talking about your history in running. Um, we're debating a little bit about what it means to be a pro runner. Um, for you, you, in your own words, you can kind of go over it again. But um, as a primer, I would consider where you were at least at one point, probably in that realm. Even though there's no official, um, you know, official line of demarcation. I think if you're getting close to or at Olympic qualifying, Olympic trial qualifying time, that I think that's a pretty good line of demarcation. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, we were talking about this a minute ago. I, you know, I competed in, in university in Canada and um, continued on after uh, with the club and um, competed at the Olympic trials twice. And, um, you know, it's some people, to some people that seems like, you know, really highest of levels. And, you know, I might agree to a certain level, but in Canada versus the United States, for example, the Olympic trials are quite like vastly different. Um, if you make the Olympic trials in the U.S., like you're arguably you're, you know, a, sort of a top athlete uh, in track. Whereas in Canada, you can kind of sneak into the Olympic trials in a way, um, mostly because there's not as much depth in, in Canada for, for Olympic trials. Mm -hmm. You still have to, you know, of course, qualify and, and, and compete, um, but um, it's not as uh, it's not as hard as it might be in, in a country like the U.S. where the depth in, in athletes, um, you know, level and abilities is, is so, so deep. And, um, you know, for example, I would have never, I would have never qualified for Olympic trials in the U.S. Um, had I attempted that when I was competing, just, just to kind of show you the difference. Like I, I probably would have been a good 15 seconds off in a steeplechase to qualify and probably, 
another, you know, seven, eight seconds in the 1500, something like that. Yeah. So, so just to kind of show you like the difference there. Well, and it, so if you're listening and you're not familiar with that kind of time, it, it seems like, you know, so if, so if you come, if you step back from kind of where you were back to the realm of say average age grouper and they're like, I'm running a 21 oh, sure, minute yeah. 5k, like seven, yeah. eight seconds isn't a big deal, but at yeah, that yeah. level, yeah. seven, eight seconds yeah, is a exactly. lot. Exactly. There's a yeah, ton sure. of people in that span. That's a fair point to clarify that. I think, you know, it's, I, I tell people a lot because you know, it's sometimes as a former athlete who can be at some level, right? You're often you'll say you'll go run a local 5k, for example, and run, I don't know, 1630 or 17 minutes. And you're right. like, you're like, Oh, that's amazing. And you know, I'm at a point now in my life where one, I can't even do 16, 30, 17 minutes or something like that right now. But, um, you know, when I was able to do this kind of off the couch, if you will, mm -hmm. I'd be like, Oh yeah, it's all right. And people would almost find that sort of condescending or, or, yeah. you know, just because it's, they're trying to break 20 minutes and you're, and you're, you know, you talk as if 1630 is no big deal. But again, it's, I always try to tell people if you're a 20 minute 5k person and you just run 23 minutes, you probably wouldn't be too happy with it. Right. And they're like, right. yeah. So anyway, so that's just the, the relativity of times and performances, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an expectation thing. And, and as I was saying before we got going, it's, it's a matter. I, I often mention, um, my kind of friend and former coach, Barb Linquist, who was at one time ranked number one in the world um, in triathlon. And I, I watched her Olympic race. I hadn't, I had never seen it. And then when COVID hit, they were replaying it. And so she competed in the Olympics 2004. And so I was like texting her while it was going on. Obviously this is, you know, 15, 16 years ago now that this has happened. And she was like, Oh yeah, the, the glory days. And she really plays down that whole experience. I, I think there's just something that there's some kind of mental adjustment that happens that I, I think if I look at her and then I think about even my own performances versus like, as you mentioned that 16, 30, 17 minute range, like we run that and we're like, okay, that was okay, but that's not, my personal best. I think she does it. We do it where it's like, I know I've done better. I have higher expectations for myself. So then it's, that's ah, not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it recalibrates too with age and with, well, I wouldn't say with age necessarily, because you always think about it, but I would say with, when you come to terms with your current levels of fitness mm -hmm. and you objectively assess where you are and, and say, you know what, I should be happy with X, right. As opposed to, whatever my PB is from, from 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and I think at the elite level and the elite mindset, that might take a, a while to kind of come to terms with that and accept that. Mm -hmm. But you get to a point where you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, that was, you know, um, that's normal now. This is fine. This is good. I'm, I'm still able, if I'm able to run a, even a 17 minute 5k or 18 minute 5k, you're still, you're still performing at a level that, you know, is probably in the, in the you know, top percentile. Uh, right in the whole world so it's you got to kind of think of it that way yeah i think that's something i looked up before i can't remember exactly where it is but it, you're i think you're right there it's it's somewhere around that like 18 17 30 ish yeah. mark where it's like that's the top one percent of times yeah exactly and for people that were involved in trying to be a pro or really take it to the next level that seems incredibly slow just because that curves almost exponential 
right. you, you know, towards the performance side where you start to get, you know, Galen Rupp and the other guys going 13 something for their 5k. And you're like, I, I yeah. couldn't touch that if I wanted to. Or even women now running, you right. know, low 14s and 1430s and 20s. And, right. um, you know, like American distance running, for example, on the women's side. Now, now if you run 1530, it's a, 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 a solid college time for mm -hmm. women. Right. And, uh, you know, the goal is not, like now it's more common to take a crack at 15 minutes. It used to be this like, well, 15 minute mark for the 5,000. Now it's like, all right, let's do it. Let's try it. Let's give it a shot. It's just another, a more normalized threshold. Mm -hmm. So across the board, I think that's true. So I, this is a little diversion off of you kind of, but I think you said you're, you're coaching your wife right now. I, as well. I, I coach my wife, coach. my wife from 2000 and uh, let's see. Uh, fifteen, two thousand fifteen, um, to to maybe a little maybe the, the fall of two thousand fourteen, um, until um, last fall, and okay. then she, she she kind of got to a point where you know we live in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, great places to run, great city for running, but um, from a from a training standpoint, it got difficult for her to you know, just the day to day, the motivation to be by yourself constantly. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, I was running with her most of the time for workouts, but, uh, in January, 2019, I tore my right ACL playing basketball. And so I wasn't able to run at all that last year in 2019. So then I couldn't run with her at all. And so she was completely solo. Uh, she did a few altitude training camps that was good because she was able to run with people there in Boulder. Um, <clears throat> and then, Last fall, she, uh, you know, with her agent and with Ben Rosario of NAZ Elite and Flagstaff, you know, there was some conversations about her potentially joining the group. And then the conversations became a bit more uh, real. And then uh, she signed like, a contract with NAZ and then started on January 1st. And then she's been there and uh, has been running really great, enjoying the environment, the team atmosphere, the group environment. And so, um, so now she's fully with the group since January 1 and has been coached by Ben Rosario, who's, who's the head coach there. Yep. Well, I, I don't remember where we were a second ago because um, something led me into thinking about that because I, I think I'd seen on your Instagram that like um, speaking about her performance running personal bests after like a 10 year span from college yeah, to yeah, now, yeah, sure. you know, yeah, like, she has, she has, she's had an outstanding sort of um, progression. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, it seems like obviously you played a role in, you know, her training there for time. Yep. Um, how, you know, and as we were just talking about the kind of readjusting expectations, did, did you, I guess, what kind of, what kind of mental adjustments did she make or did you help her stay in to continue trying to find that new personal best? Cause to go, hmm. you know, to yeah. be after something for so long and to take so much time to get there, is sure. not an easy feat. Yeah, it's it's a good question, and it's it's a bit for her. It's quite fascinating how it all went down. I mean, she just had a really good college career, and then at Baylor University, and then you know turned pro with Asics uh, for a few years, and then had a slew of injuries, and joined a group that wasn't a best fit for her, and then that was a few years of sort of no progression, no improvements. So I lost her contract. Was not sponsored for years. Uh, had a couple of coach or uh, switches and coaches, and then uh, I got a job. I accepted an offer uh, for my job that I currently in at the University of Memphis in 2012. Uh, she was finishing her master's degree at, at Tennessee in Knoxville, 
Um, and so she had a year left and so she stayed back and was coached still there then moved to Memphis and was coached by someone remotely in 2013 and 14 and did decently well. Um, I think she ran really close to her, to her PB in 1500 in 2014. And then that fall, like kind of they, that coaching relationship kind of stopped. And then she was sort of without a coach in, in 2014 at the end of, of the year. And then, uh, you know, we sort of decided that I would coach her. Um, you know, it wasn't, it's not, to me, it's not always the best option for mm-hmm. your, you know, to coach your spouse, but it definitely was the best option at the time for her. And, and uh, from my perspective, so my background, you know, with running research and biomechanics, it was really a question of trying to get her away from the injury cycle that she'd been in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I had never coached at, at her level and, and not, not that, not that coaching knowledge doesn't translate from, you know, coaching, you know, sub elite to elite. It's the same mindset. It's just, there are other things you have to consider, right? So it's a bit more, you know, the outcomes are more important typically and so on. But the big thing was just to try to get her in a, in a, out of that injury cycle. Mm-hmm. And so did a lot of, most of the work around that was to make sure that she was healthy. And, um, you know, we got her healthy. Um, it took about a year from 2014 to the end of 2015 for her to start, you know, some form changes, some like some strength that, that was tossed into that. A lot of work with our physical therapists in town. Um, and then, um, yeah, you know, she had a really good fall in 2015. And 2016, she kind of started out her new career, if you will, as a 5,000-meter runner because she, she had been an 800, 1,500-meter runner. And, you know, out of the gate, she was obviously – it was clear that that was her event. And she was, you know, ran 15 teens uh, then in, in 2016. And then from 2016 to, to 20. 19 i mean she ran you know 15 14 to 15 19 like I don't know how many times a number of times mm-hmm. and and going back to the whole injury cycle aspect of it for me it was never about well yes i wanted her to get better and she was she was better than she was in 2019 she was better than she was in 2016 but her times didn't really improve per se um there's other reasons involved that like racing opportunities and things like that that mm-hmm. you know in in, in at the elite level, the race you're in really matters often for, for fast times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we won't get into that, but uh, she ended up, um, you know, just staying there, you know, at that 15, 14 to 15, 19 range consistently, but her placing at the U S champs kept getting better. Her racing was better and so on and so forth. So, um, and then uh, in her, you know, her, training load, if you will, wasn't crazy high compared to other athletes that are 5,000 meter specialists. And that transition with NAZ elite was really that big part is one is the great environment of Flagstaff, great teammates, great coaching, great resources. And then just the training is just, it's just more than she was doing. And she responded really well to it. Um, and so it was, it was a really nice progression that way. You mm-hmm. know, it was a good, good solid, like three and a half, four years of of making making sure she was away from the major injury cycle like bone stress injuries and things like that mm-hmm. she had a couple of achilles flare-ups um but aside from that it was keeping trying to basically minimize the risks of you know major injuries like to me a stress fracture would be obviously a major injury that right. takes you away for enough time that it affects your performance uh long term and so then, yeah, the progression to NAZ was, was really uh, seamless and she's really, really been enjoying it. And it was, a, yeah, overall sort of adding on to her, her, uh, her bank of training, if you will, uh, made a lot of sense. It, it seems like you're talking about 
you being the right option at that time, especially regarding injuries, it seems like that probably played a role in making you the right person to help coach her since that's kind of what yeah. you specialize in research wise. Well, you know, I was the only option at the time. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I mean, they're probably, you know, with a bit of, with a bit of sort of, uh, it, it would have been possible for it to be coached by somebody else, no doubt. Um, but from a, from, from a logical, logistical standpoint and everything else, it made a lot more sense to do it that way. Um, and it did end up working out really well. And it's, it wasn't just me. It was also, I mean, you know, it was also the resources that we had in Memphis with, you know, our, our physio in town, Mark Temme and, and other, uh, other people involved at the time and still now. Um, but yeah, it just, it, it worked out, you know, as, as it often does um, mm -hmm. that way. So, yeah. Well, and, and I think, um, and maybe this is the paper you mentioned getting a lot of press. Um, talking about mileage not being the best indicator of like stress load on, on people. Yeah. Is that, yeah. you know, that ideology, is that kind of the underlying idea of helping get her out of that cycle? Yeah. Um, it's a good, uh, it's a nice transition by the way, um, on, <laughs> on that. Uh, and I think, uh, just, just to go back to Lauren and what you just asked, um, you know, I'm not like for her, it wasn't so much like volume. That was the issue. Particularly. Okay. I think at, at the time of the recurring injuries, it was mostly Achilles injuries and, and calf injuries and things like that. A couple of foot injuries. Uh, it was a lot of the intensity, like, you know, spending a lot of time on the track, really hammering mm -hmm. out, uh, track sessions and, and short sprinting stuff. Um, not that there's anything wrong with those types of sessions, obviously. It's just the context of not being ready for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and some people just, some people just aren't, uh, are, are unfortunately not sort of put together in a way that they can handle a lot of that. Um, and so anyway, so um, it was sort of for her to answer your question, wasn't really about mileage per se, okay. but um, so the, the paper you're mentioning, you're mentioning now is, is a, a clinical commentary that myself and Chris Napier, who's a, who's a physio up in Canada at UBC, and was also a really, um, a really good runner himself. He was, you know, like a 232 marathoner. Uh, Rich Willie, who's, uh, you know, arguably one of the most, uh, I mean, from my perspective, and I know from many perspective, one of the best sort of running specific PTs in the world, I would, I would argue. Um, He's based uh, in Montana, uh, and then he's also a PhD in biomechanics, and, and so is Chris, by the way, Chris Napier. And then Trent Stellingworth, who's a long, long friend of mine, uh, sort of a, served as a mentor as well when I was starting out in, in, in science. And Trent's um, director of research and innovation, I believe, is his title up in, uh, in Victoria at the Kane Sport Institute. And Trent's a sports physiologist, but uh, also sort of sports nutrition realm. Um, and so... Anyway, the four of us had been talking this, about this idea of, of sort of, you know, it seems obvious to most, but just kind of bringing up some, some ideas and, and uh, concepts around why, you know, solely relying on mileage or distance um, to quantify training in runners might not be best. Um, and again, it's funny, I've spoken to many, a few Canadians about this, a few, like many Europeans, Australians, and everybody's sort of confused like like yeah it's really obvious right and, and i agree it's it's fairly obvious but i am absolutely uh baffled by the amount of um people in the u.s 
specifically, um, high school coaches mostly, who are not offended by the concept of, of saying that mileage is not the best way to quantify training, but just, you know, again, offended might be the best word in the end, but <laughs> um, they're just so confused as to how else you would do it, right? Uh, right. Which, is, which is, I always tell my colleagues in Europe or Australia or wherever, that yeah, you think it's obvious, but it's not. Um, and so in this paper, we basically give some examples and, some, and, and present some, some reasons as to why using mileage to, to quantify training is not the best. Um, and, and so I can kind of talk about, about that a bit more if you'd like, but uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to talk about in this, in this right. realm. So it's just kind of up to what you'd like to talk about, I suppose. Yeah, no, I mean, I, so and I, I talk about this kind of idea, um, not always in, in the context of somebody who's done research, but just in the context of how do we figure that? Because I talk to coaches, I talk to athletes. Yeah. Um, I think about, and this, you know, this, this really crosses boundaries. In this context, we're talking mileage, but um, a few weeks ago when I spoke to competitive powerlifter Claire Zai, she yep. also coaches her own kind of group of women and she's trying to work on like an actual number metric partially based in RPE rate of perceived yep. exertion for anybody who's sure. not familiar with that. And so like, she's trying to figure out how to quantify the stress load outside of, okay, you did, you know, this many reps at, at max and you did this many sub max reps and which is the, like the lifting equivalent of mileage, right? Like yeah. this many reps at this much weight. So you need this much recovery yeah. and it, it, it isolates and almost alienates the person from the rest of their life. Yeah. Any of the other stressors, life stressors, training exactly. stressors, food, sleep, any of that, yep. which is, you know, one of the large issues with mileage being in the only, yeah, exactly. only thing to go by. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're discussing. I mean, this, and this paper is about running this, specifically but it applies to all sports really right um so you know in swimming you might you might say hours of training in right. cycling same thing um you know I, I guess in cycling some people talk about mileage but it's more about power and, and wattage and so on but right but also the duration of it typically uh, in cross-country skiing i'm not too too familiar with with how it's quantified i, I suppose it's because it's more european based it's probably more time based mm -hmm. um and then rowing is typically time, um, you know, to, to quantify, you know, amount of training or volume of training. So what you mentioned, though, is, is exactly that we're trying to get at is, is that, you know, the amount of, of distance that you cover per a given time period. Now, we can talk about that as well, like the concept of like, why are we so obsessed with weeks, like seven day blocks? Like, it's just it doesn't make much sense physiologically or, or, or otherwise, right. It's just, it's just the idea that like it's convenient Monday, Monday through Sunday or Sunday right. through Saturday or whatever. But anyway, we can talk about that later, but um, you know, we, we tend to think, okay, if you run X amount of miles uh, or well, let me step back, you know, often I've always heard people that, well, first we, we, we define this like as like the obsession for mileage. People are just obsessed like that's extra, what doesn't help by GPS watches don't help, you know, all these things. Mm -hmm. Um, but the idea is that my, all of this started for me is when, you know, I'm around, I'm around parents and, and high school coaches and other coaches. And I hear these things like, well, if you're in grade 10 or whatever, you need to run 40 miles a week. Or if you're in, you know, <laughs> okay. that, or, 
or if you're and 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 I don't mean that in a condescending way. I just right. the tone that I just took, but I mean that in that I think most people don't quite understand. Um, they've just been told this all the time, right. and it might have worked for them in the past. If if a coach is an athlete, or if a parent was an athlete, and they just hear this, or it, or if a, a kid heard their parent or their coach say that, right, right. they just kind of regurgitate because they don't really know why. And, and I think it's important to educate everyone about what mileage is and you know the but the idea that a certain amount of miles is supposed to be run if you're 16 years old or if you're a girl or a boy or if you want to run 15 minutes in the 5k as a high school cross-country runner you need to run you know 80 like some threshold of mileage is, is to me it is absolutely absurd uh i don't know what other word to describe that but right. um and then it also translates to injury and and research on injury where people say the findings in the literature on, you know, uh, training related risk factors for injuries are all over the place. It's so inconsistent. Like you, you look at systematic reviews and meta analyses and what they, the findings are typically, well, if you run less than 15 miles a week, you're at risk for injury. If you run more than 45 miles a week, you're at risk of injury. If you run between 20 and 40 miles, you're at risk of injury. It's like, so basically don't run, right. It's kind of what this says. Right, right. And, and, and ultimately the idea is that yes, running, if you're going to run, you, 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 you're like, you, you might get a running injury. It's like, if you play tennis, you get a tennis injury. If you play golf, you might get a golf, you know, whatever. Um, and I think part of the reason why these, this research is so inconsistent is because a lot of this research designs focus on, you know, distance as the marker of training. And as you described earlier, there's so much more that's going on in athletes' lives that are affecting how they more importantly respond to training. Mm -hmm. And as a result, how they recover or not from training. Uh, and so that would, distance doesn't help you with that. Right. I right. could, I guarantee you, I could take, I could take, you know, 10 runners and have them run 20 miles a week, every week for a year. Right. And still get many of them injured. Mm -hmm. If that was my challenge for some reason, okay, here's 10 runners, Max. Uh, they can't run more than 20 miles a week. And the goal is to get them injured. Easy. That would be very easy to do. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you, you don't need a hundred miles. I'll just get 20 miles a week and I'll have them do, you know, hill sprints every day. Bro, it's like, we'll we can do it with five miles a week. We don't yeah, even yeah, need 20. Right, right, right. We'll cover the Achilles. Let's just crank some track stuff and spikes and hills every right. day for the first two weeks. Right. That's probably take care of it. Yeah. Or we'll just do, you know, 20 miles and every day they do, you know, two mile, uh, two, two to four mile time trials on the, on, on the road and, and flats, you know, we'll probably take care of some stress fractures there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, it, again, you can start when you start thinking about it. You start realizing, like, okay, mildness threshold obviously seems a little bit absurd or, or simplistic. So there's so many different ways, different things to do uh, to to do that. And again, I'm I've had people say, um, you know, things like, well, you know, sometimes it's easier to just say go run, you know, x amount of miles. Or I'm like, well, yeah, okay, you can do that. Or you could just you could also just say go run for x amount of minutes. Either way. Uh, and I'm not too picky with that. Like, I don't think prescription of mileage is a problem. I think what we're discussing in this paper is monitoring the response to training, mm -hmm. not, not the prescription. Right? Prescription and, and monitoring are completely different concepts. So I can prescribe some, some mileage, but I, then I might consider monitoring the response to that mileage differently than just mileage. You know? Um, and so we can talk about training load and other measurements that include RPE, as you mentioned, rate of perceived exertion or effort, um, and, and how that comes in to quantify these responses a bit better.
Well, it seems like even if, even if we take, say, say that, that group of 10 individuals and we're going to do yeah. 20 miles a week and we can control for food. We can, con everybody gets the same amount of sleep. Everybody yeah. has the same family control somehow. Stuff. We control yeah. for yeah. all these things. Then you're still yeah. not controlling for genetic potential, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. so and, it's and, like, yeah. And, but well, on, on that topic, I mean, there's other factors like, you know, if you do it for a year, you know, there's gonna be times a year where it's warm or humid or cold or, or dry right. or whatever. And depending on who you are, you're going to respond differently to, to, to that training exposure in those environments. And as a result, your, the, your recovery time or your, your response from the training will be different. Um, so it's all that. And, and, you know, I see it, I get it in high school. Like if you're a high school coach and you have 40 kids that you train, um, I get that just prescribing mileage is, is just, convenient you know mm -hmm. it's just is and i think and i i don't mean again i don't mean to be like pointing fingers at college or, or high school cross-country coaches but there's a reason why the barrier to entry in coaching cross-country is so low anyone can coach cross-country which is a great thing and a bad thing right if that makes sense right because if you don't know anything about running you'll go online and say how do i coach online or you know cross-country runners and then you'll say, well, you'll read some blog from somewhere that'll say, well, if they're in grade nine, have them run 20 to 30 miles a week. And if you're, and you know, they're not, they're not bad uh, estimations of the anatomical development of a kid at that age, but it's just siloing, you know, the, everybody into the same spot and saying, okay, well, you run this amount, grade 10 runs this amount. And so anybody can kind of do it. Are the results going to be good? Probably not ideal. Uh, obviously not optimal, mm -hmm. um, but they might, they might still work because you might get a kid who's just extra talented and, and do really well with whatever it is that you're giving them, right? And you could right. give them more or less, but they would still respond the same way because that's the other thing that we tend not to talk about much in high school sports is that, you know, a lot of high school coaches really take pride in performance and how many trophies and state championships and mm -hmm. da, 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 da. But in reality you know, these kids, they're adapting and developing so quickly that, you know, you could argue that the same kid with, with half the amount of training could do the same thing. Right. You know, it's tough. And of, of course, there's no way to, to test this, this hypothesis, right? right. There's no way to take a kid and be like, well, let's go through four years of high school and then come mm -hmm. back and then do it again. Right. Cause now you're the completely different aspect. So right. it's unless you have twins, right. You have, you know, or triplets ideally. So you can have like different right. control groups. You go to this school, you go to that school. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you, you know, and even then, even then with twins, there's still variation. So, um, right. anyway, so that's kind of the, the, some of the, uh, some, at least some of the, uh, uh, reasons for why we decided to kind of write this commentary on, uh, in the JOSP and JOSPT. And it's so far it's receiving, uh, you know, it's being, it's being received very well and we're getting a lot of emails and messages and, you know, podcast episodes on this and, um, you know, popular media, of course, picks it up and all that. So right. it's, it's good. It's good to try to get it out. Uh, and I'm not, again, this is not new. This is not, this is nothing new. Right. It's just kind of new to running in the United States. Um, you know, you look at team sports all over the world. I mean, they've been doing, they've been monitoring training in different ways for, you know, 50 years plus, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just like cross country running and running in general is a bit behind on those things. Yeah. Do you have, um, I'll say in an ideal world, cause there's, there's all these different kind of like 
training devices now yep. that are trying to figure oh. out how to measure the stress load. You know, if you watch, like I watch MLS, so they, you know, yep. the guys have the trackers on them, so they know GPS, how far they yeah. went. Yeah. yeah. And then there's companies like, and I'm not affiliated with them, but I see these commercials on yep. other podcasts. I watch the Whoop that tries yep. to do like do the stress. Is, is there currently, um, not as an endorsement, obviously, but is there a currently um, technology that you would say this does a very good job or is there something else that needs to be made in an ideal world for you to, to capture that stress metric? Yeah, yeah, that's a super question. Uh, I think, so it's a tough question, um, but it's a good one in that um, there's, the answer is yes, but at the moment, there isn't one company or one tool or one metric that I would say has made the monitoring process so simplistic that that is relevant to runners. Okay. <laughs> so for me as a scientist with a lot of resources uh, at my disposal from the lab and so on and so forth and computational abilities and whatnot, um, there are things that are really good. Uh, but for the average consumer, at the moment, um, most things are a little too, they require a little too much, if that makes sense. So it's, it's just not to the point where, where anybody can know what this means or what this metric means or what this, what this color on a graph means or you know, what the graph means, period, or, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So that's one problem. The other problem is that I don't, the, the, the industry, the wearable you know, monitoring industry has jumped the gun by probably a solid uh, 30 years. And a colleague of mine, Ross Miller, yesterday we were texting and he said, we won't be able to predict injuries in 100 years. And uh, so uh, you could say they've jumped the gun in 100 years. Um, but I say that because we still don't quite know exactly. Like, like, let me put it this way. If, if scientists can't predict an injury with all the fancy equipment available to them, how can a wearable company that measures things from a watch or a sensor on your shoe do it, right? Right. And so if you look at it this way, if the best possible resources, equipment, instruments can't do it yet, how can a wearable company, technology, whatever, do it? it it's just, but the, the fact is that the marketing, you know, statements are basically saying, you know, run injury free and, and prevent injuries and all this stuff. And it's like, it's insane. Um, and, and, you know, you're sitting here as, as a scientist, and like, look, we're testing these things and we can't even figure this out. How the heck are these people figuring out? And, you know, where's the data? The, the, the answer is it's not there, right. you know, um, but marketing and the industry is always about, you know, moving forward very quickly. Right. Uh, because everybody else is doing it. So if, if, a com if company X does it and makes the claims, company Y can't just sit back and wait till the data comes up in a hundred years. Right. I mean, of course, like it's just, that's not how you do, and that's not how you, you, you succeed, I guess, in business. But, um, you know, there's too many limitations at the moment. Like, you know, you, you can get, like we said, you can get hurt doing nothing. You can get hurt, you know, running a little bit and you can get hurt running a lot or not. So it's just, um, we're not quite there. Uh, and, and so always beware of claims like that. I will say that, you know, we've just finished a couple of studies that are under review right now, almost through the review process. And one of them was with high school runners. And we addressed that question and we weren't actually looking at injury risks per se, but 
we were comparing, we had a high school team that did uh, two weeks. We monitored them for a, a whole two weeks. We had, I think, 10 or 12 runners uh, in the, on the same team. So it's not a big sample, but it's from the same team, same coach, same schedule, same racing, same right. academic, you know, all that. Um, and so week one was the coach was pre prescribed a low training week or, uh, you know, a, a light training week, if you will. And then week two was a heavy training week. So we knew that the intention at least was from go from low to high. So then we expect that, you know, everything would go up from week one to week two. But our question was, you know, how much would it go up when we use different ways to quantify this change from week one to week two. Right. Uh, so, you know, we, we tracked mileage, we tracked just minutes, we tracked um, RPE every day, right? Session, uh, our uh, rate, of, rate of perceived exertion um, for the whole session every day we did that. And then we threw in some, to answer your question, some more complicated metrics. So we had one where we use uh, inertial measurement units or basically these sensors that go around the ankles. Right. Um, we used insoles that measure forces. Mm -hmm. um, and then we used, of course, stuff from, from watches like cadence and step down and things like that, okay? So we had minutes, mileage, and then we compared, uh, we, we, we calculated uh, different metrics of training load. And just quickly, training load is typically uh, like the combination of some measure of external load or like forces acting on the body and some measure of internal load, physiological load, or how the athlete is responding to those forces basically, or that training. So our internal load measurement was RPE. That's all we used. Mm -hmm. Okay. Our external load measurements were uh, minutes, uh, step counts per run, how many steps you took per run, um, uh, uh, sort of a, a proprietary bone load type of measurement from a company, and then uh, an estimated uh, cumulative uh, vertical force per run. So what we did is every step, there's a vertical force, you know, that, that, that you can measure, and we took the peak value of that force, and we just summed with every step. So we got the average force and then we multiplied that by the number of steps per run. And that gives us the cumulative force per run. Okay. So the, the, the reasoning here was that if we use minutes that's a, or, or miles, it's pretty simplistic sort of general over, uh, uh, over, I should say over simplistic sort of generalization of what the load is on the person. When you look at force and, you know, uh, acceleration or shock with the bone estimation and then steps per run that's that becomes a bit more specific to the runner right so if every runner runs 30 minutes the number of steps will not be the same at all because right. of different cadences and step lengths and things like that and, and right. the, the the overall force won't be the same so basically we compared very simplistic measurements like minutes and then more complicated measurements all the way down to you know estimated force times rpe and what we found was that uh, anytime we, we combined RPE and some other measurement of load, we got a different response than if we just looked at minutes, okay? Which is expected because everybody's going to respond differently. Their RPE will be different. But the really cool finding was that it didn't matter if you use a really complicated measurement like force or, or, or bone load or steps. Um, when you combine with RPE, using minutes was fine. So minutes times RPE per day throughout the whole week gave us the same week to week change as force times RPE or bone load times RPE. So the big conclusion was like, we probably should measure training load. Um, you know, some measure of load times RPE, uh, to quantify week to week changes, but we don't need to make it complex. Mm -hmm. So 
long answer to say that there are companies, but given what we know from a, from a quantifying training, to quantify training stress in runners, we probably just need minutes in RPE. We get the same week to week change right. uh, uh, values than if we use really complicated measurements. Now that's a different question than if you ask me, uh, what about injury risks? And right. I don't know the answer to that question. Right. right? Uh, or what if you said, what about to quantify training in a person who's coming back from injury? In which case it would depend on the injury, right? So if it's a bone stress injury, you might want to measure things that are more related to bone injuries, mm-hmm. which we kind of have an idea of what is related to bone injuries, but not, you know, we're not, no one's, well, no one in their right mind is fully, is fully, you know, convinced that there are specific things that are related to bone injuries, for example, or so on. But, um, so it depends really on the, on the application of how you're quantifying training and why. So if, if it's just to understand the training response, then yeah, I think we have a good concept of that. In terms of predicting injury, not at all. In terms of return to running, a, a bit better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, um, so in all this that you're saying reminds me of um, a couple weeks ago, I spoke with uh, Matt Jordan, who works yep. at the Canadian Sport Institute, Calgary. Yeah. And he's doing, I'll say similar kind of stuff, not the same athletes, but the similar yeah. kind of like ideas is what you're talking about, trying to measure um, these variables. And, and I spoke with him more about the, the kind of return after injury. And if yeah. I hope I'm not misquoting him, this is just off of my top of my head. Um, I think he had mentioned, um, you know, sometimes we, an athlete will get the, the go ahead to return to injury or after injury. And then, you know, they stop being monitored. And then basically their, their recurrence of injury is typically, and I think it was an Alpine athlete like 12 to 18 months after return. And it's, yeah. so it's way after yeah. return, but we're not paying mm-hmm. attention to it. But sure. throughout all of it, that like RPE becomes such a relatively reliable metric. Right. And people complain sometimes, oh, RPE is subjective. 100% RPE right. is subjective. But if whoever's, you know, rating effort or exertion knows what the purpose of the or knows why it's being used mm-hmm. and understand and has the proper instructions on to how to use it people can be very they can they can answer they can report rp reliably mm-hmm. and consistently and so that's the most important thing i don't care that it's subjective that's irrelevant because when you're asking someone about their effort you don't care how their effort compares to somebody else you care about how you know their actual effort. So they have to be able to answer that for themselves reliably right. every day. Right. And that's all that matters. And that's where, that's where science and practice sometimes clashes because a lot of science is like, Oh, you have a small sample size and you only have X amount of athletes. And then coaches are talking about science. Like, well, you're only looking at college students. You're not looking at my elite athletes that have very specific, you know, attributes and, and they're both right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, if I'm a coach, I don't, I only care about my athletes, how they're responding to my training. Right. And then what I can do to adjust their training to make them better. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what, you know, obviously Matt has done some great work in that, in that realm. I don't know Matt personally, but I know, you know, of him because one, he's where he works in Canada and, and two, he's, you know, he's done a lot of work in that realm and ACL rehab and so on and so yeah. forth. But yep. that's true to all injuries and in rehab and return to the play program is just to understand uh, whether or not your measurements are reliable, whether or not your, your measurements are valid, and, uh, and, and what, it, what changes in, in, in those values mean. And that's often why we struggle. You know, 
like, you know, if, if there's a change in, 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 a, in the value of a metric by two or three points, is that meaningful or not? And mm-hmm. it might not be for athlete X, but it might be for athlete Y, which is why it becomes complicated. And that's why it convolutes the findings in the literature. Um, but that's just, that's the nature of it, right? Which is why I like doing what I do, which is, yes, I'm, I'm a lab scientist, but I also, you know, have a big foot or, a, you know, I, I have a foot in the, in the applied performance world where I talk to coaches and athletes and, and I understand, you know, um, and there's a lot of scientists like that, but there's also a lot of scientists who are just in the lab. Right. Know? Right. And that gets lost in, in translation, literally. Yeah. yeah. It, so it makes you wonder if all of that comes back to, I, I think I saw a post from you. I think it was on your Instagram um, showing your watch uh, and how you went back to not using the more complicated watch. Yeah. So I have this fancy watch right here. Shout yeah. out to Steph Bruce, <laughs> Steph, Steph Bruce, who's a, who gave me this watch. Uh, it's a polar watch and it's fancy. It's great. It looks great. Actually, I like how it looks. I like how it feels when I wear it. And it, I like to track my sleep with it. Not that I'm not sure how well it tracks my sleep, but um, at least I get a feel for it, you know, every day. And, and uh, it can give me my heart rate here and there if I want to. Again, I'm not sure how valid it is, but, mm-hmm. but for running, and I, I understand that I can turn all the notifications and things off, but for running to me, I don't use, like I'm not a marathoner, nor will I ever be. Um, if I'm a marathoner and I need to run 26.2 miles, well, I know I have to run, you know, I know I have to understand, I have to put my body through that distance, right? At some point mm-hmm. at the, at the pace that I want to, to run. Um, in which case a GPS watch makes sense unless you have a mapped out course. But for me, uh, uh, you know, running is, is more about, you know, yeah, there's specific workouts that might be interval based, but most of it is just spending time out there. You know, one of, one of, um, one of my good friends used to say, you know, it's, about, it's all about spending time on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's true, you know, you're spending time, you're, you're putting your time in, you're, you're doing, you know, we don't, we don't measure age in, in distance, we measure age in years, you know, so why do we measure training in distance, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, I could go all day about the distance versus time thing, but um, ultimately for me, it's about, at this point in my life, it's more about when I want to go run, I have a set period of time to go run. Mm-hmm. And if I feel crappy, and I'm running slower and I run longer than I have time for, I, you know, I don't want to be rushed or stressed to get back kind of thing. So I've, I got 30 minutes. I'm going to go run 30 minutes. I don't care how far I go, how slow I go, how fast I go. Um, because I'm not training for anything really. Mm-hmm. I just like to go and enjoy my time out there, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people would, would have some, there'd be value for a lot of people in using that approach where you're not so concerned with pace and, you know, when you start being concerned with pace on your easy runs or your recovery runs, um, you know, you might want to consider changing how you approach running. Um, mm-hmm. And just because yes, again, the, there's value in, in running certain paces during specific sessions with specific intentions. But when you're just trying to get some, some you're just trying to get out there and, and put in the time and the training uh, you know, it doesn't always matter how fast you go. And mm-hmm. that's a really hard concept to tell kids. Yeah. Uh, young, young runners who see pro runners, you know, who post their Strava, I had, an, I had an easy run in 6.30 pace and so on and so forth. Um, which if you spend time looking at Strava accounts of pro runners, you, even the best, like you'll see their easy runs sometimes are 7.30, 7.40 pace, mm-hmm. you know, 7.10. You know, Again, that, sound, that sounds fast for many. Um, 
but compared to what they run, you know, sub five minute pace, for example, four thirty pace, yep. you know, it's sometimes three minutes off. Yep. Whereas a lot of high school kids will be racing at six minute pace and they're running their easy runs at six forty five pace. Right. Like <laughs> it's, but yet they think they have to run fast. They think it's an absolute number. It's not, it's all relative to what they can do, how they respond to that, how they feel, so on and so forth. So anyway, long story to tell you, that's why I don't use this watch to run. And I use my old Timex, my old, uh, my old uh, faithful, uh, loyal, you know, $30 target Timex watch. Yeah. That's, that, that's something I've definitely spent a lot of time trying to stress with people in general, but I also do a show just about running. And yeah. I, I don't know, I've had people comment and like recently I had a, a gentleman coming back from being bedridden of all things from in the hospital, trying to get back to running. And he's like, oh, I'm running six minute pace and I can only run for 90 seconds. And I'm like, I'm like, look, I, I have a friend who runs low thirties for his 10 K and he runs seven to eight minute pace. Like there's zero reason to be running at six minute pace. You were just bedridden. Like just slow down, <laughs> slow down. It, it is so hard to get into people's head yeah. that they don't have to go fast to like get more fit. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, so, and, and you know, if you look about performance, uh, predictors, it's not how many specific workouts you do. It's typically just, you know, how, how much, how much volume have you done? How much training have you done over the right. years? Right. You know, you look at the, uh, the Ingebrigtsen brothers, the, the Norwegian brothers, there was a really cool study published about uh, the, the three brothers uh, a few, maybe two years ago. Um, and it was about, it basically just summarized their, their lives as athletes, like what they had done as kids. And, and if you look at it, 90% of their training plus probably is just basic aerobic work, cross country skiing, you know, like running easy. I mean, all these things that are just purely just running, uh, mm -hmm. not fast, just running like hundred percent aerobic type work. Um, and I think people get too caught up with like specific workouts mm -hmm. often like at the high school level, if you're running consistently and you're you're doing a little more here and there and once in a while you run hard and you know you don't race every single weekend you know just just some basic consistent exposure with with little interruptions like injuries right the the, the your your long-term success is is going to be much better if if you just have you know, you're not trying to be you know the and you're not trying to be the the, the high school kid who runs 80 to 100 miles a week and yes there are kids that do that and they're successful and that's part of the problem because and I don't mean that like that kid shouldn't do that or whatever. I'm just saying most kids can't do that, but yet a kid like that will be uh, idolized and put on a pedestal mm -hmm. and, you know, flow track picks it up and this picks it up. And then all the high school kids are like, Oh, this kid's a God and I need to do that. And then they don't understand that. Yeah, this kid's a God, but in your eyes, but also from a physiological standpoint, he's a bit of a freak and not in a bad way and just in a, in a, uh, you know, a freak of nature. Right, and he, an can hang, he can, yeah, he's, he's an outlier. Like we have a kid in Tennessee here who runs like a nine forty something two mile, yeah. Like a sixteen thirty five k a girl, uh, a grade ten or eleven girl. Yeah. And you know it would be very easy for a kid or a parent or a coach who doesn't know much about running, or even if they know a lot about running, it just depends on how you process information. But they might say, "Well, to be that good, you need to do this. Whatever she's doing, you need to do it." You know, uh, and that's where the education comes in handy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Max, as we're starting to run out of time, it's a question I ask everybody this season. I'm going to ask you too, because um, it, it 
kind of hits the high point for everybody. It doesn't matter what the, the sport or discipline is. Um, so I'm curious on your opinion of what you think the purpose of sport is. Hmm. The purpose of sport. Wow. What a question. That's very philosophical. Um, uh, wow. Uh, well, you know, I think um, I'm not really, a, I would say I'm not really a sports fan. What I mean by that is, I don't really have a team or I don't really follow. Like I'm not the kind of person to be like, you see the game last night? Just how many points this guy, you know? And I right. know, I know I'm an outlier in that sense, you know, as a 35 year old, you know, man uh, in America. But I, you know, to me, sport was always about, you know, doing something where you're, you're always trying to improve upon whatever it is that you're doing, whatever sport it is, you know, and, and it's, and it, and it's kind of a vicious cycle in a way, because, you know, you have the, you set these goals for yourself in a sport and then you get to it. You're like, man, okay, what's next? And you, you, you just kind of keeps getting harder and harder. Mm-hmm. And the, the higher you get, the harder it gets. Right. right. Um, so to me, sport is almost like not from the sports fans, but from, from an athlete's perspective, to me, it's always about, it, it, it's, it's really like, it's an education process. You, whatever you do as an athlete, whatever you do in sport, it becomes a learning process that you will apply to everything else. And I've done that in my career where I'm like, okay, I want to get to this level. Okay. Now I got it faster than I thought perhaps, or, or later than I thought, okay, what's next. And you go to something else. And it's always about, it teaches ultimately to you know, sort of challenge yourself. Right. So philosophically, it's more of a, it's more of a, uh, uh, of a challenge than anything else. Um, individually or personally so that's kind of how i see sport and i think but i don't think sport itself is better than art for example mm-hmm. or, or 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 literature or any, any other concepts in the sense that you're trying to achieve the highest of levels of whatever it is you're doing and sport is just a vehicle for that where you you know if you like sports you want to get better at it if you like if you're a musician you know you you want to master this aspect of guitar and then you get you know it's the same stuff right right um so yeah, education, I guess, challenging yourself, that kind of stuff. Yes. Solid answer. Yeah. Um, Max, if you want to keep up with your research, see what you're doing, any of that kind of stuff, where can they find you? Yeah, I, I, I use Twitter a fair amount. So I'm, I'm on Twitter with the, the tag is, uh, or the handle is uh, Biomech Max. So uh, very original, um, the biomechanist, but yeah, just Biomech uh max and I, I i don't really use instagram professionally as much as i do twitter yeah um, so that's you know i think there's a lot of good discussions that happen on on twitter and um yeah that'd be it and then of course we have a college of health sciences website their faculty profiles and research pages and things like that yeah for anybody listening who who has any interest do check out max's twitter because there was as i you know prepare for speaking with you there's way more there than I could digest in the time I had allotted. <laughs> so there's definitely a lot of like good stuff. Um, if you're interested in running and research and biomechanics, all that kind of stuff that Max posts about, there's, oh, there's a lot of good information there. So thanks for hanging out with me today, Max. Uh, I enjoyed it. Let's do it again sometime. <laughs>